Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. I'm super excited today. I have a guest on, Dr. Chris Cloney. Now, Chris Cloney has the website and online business called Dust Safety Science, among some others I'm going to tell you about. And you might be wondering, why in the world do I have an explosion researcher on today's episode? This is a podcast that focuses on wildlife and conservation. So how does this relate? Well, if you turned into last week's episode, you heard me talk about what scientific research is and the importance of science communication. And as I went over last week, a lot of conservation issues actually All of them actually have to do with human attitudes and behaviors. So really so much about conservation is effective messaging and education, which of course is communication. I am super interested in science communication. And even if you're not a scientist, I think this topic is really pertinent for you if you are interested in conservation issues because You're going to talk to your neighbors, your friends, your family, and you want to do so in a way that they are more receptive to hearing your messages. I invited Chris on the podcast because he really is an expert on science communication. And what I think is even cooler is he made a business out of it, an extremely successful business out of it, as you'll see from the interview. He has three businesses slash organizations, his first being Dust Safety Science. His second is Grad Blogger, and he just launched something new this uh, past week called the Self-Tenure Community, which I actually joined. And for our audience, you'll probably be able to get the most out of the grad blogger um, community. He has a podcast, and I've learned a ton from his podcast. He also has a Facebook group that you can join that's really helpful to connect with other scientists who blog. I was really interested in interviewing Chris because I wanted to hear about how he transitioned to becoming an entrepreneur from being a scientist. And we get into all of the great details. I always learn so much from him. So I'm so excited for this interview. And let's get started. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. I'm so excited to have you today. Thanks, Stephanie. Really excited to be on. First, I wanted to start talking to you about your career in blogging, and can you go about how you got started in this career? Yeah, I love it. I'm really excited to talk through with your audience. My journey, I guess, online started back in 2016 when I left my corporate job. I started in 2011 with that company, same time I started my master's degree, eventually transferred into a PhD program, and it was really great until it wasn't. (laughs) like most jobs are, I guess. But after a a while, you know, we had oil and gas hit my company pretty hard and a lot of downturns that way, a lot of downward stresses on my group and and myself with the company. So 2016, I ended up leaving to focus full time on my PhD because I'd been doing them both for three or four years at that point. And with the sole goal of really saying, okay, I'm going to actually finish my PhD here instead of taking the full 10 years allotted by my university. Maybe we'll get this done in five or six. But I did find out some more time once I left that company and left that job role. And I also realized that I wanted to switch careers a bit. So my original position was in government research and I wanted to move more to industrial side. So I was listening to people like Pat Flynn at the time, listening to people like The Entrepreneur uh, Magazine podcasts and different groups like that. And the idea of blogging came into my head. So I just started a website based on my academic research and sort of took it from there. Can you, can you talk about why you started a PhD program? Like what, when you went into this program, what were your future career goals? Yeah. So when I started, I was already working with this company for a bit in the, the world of 
high energy systems and in particular fires and explosions. So things that go bang and go bang really quick. Obviously has you know impact for things like propulsion, has impact for things like mining where you need to clear up mines, also has impact for things like industrial safety. When you have hazardous conditions where you can have an explosion and lead to injuries and loss of uh, facility and that sort of thing. So my academic research, my PhD degree, and was in chemical engineering and looking specifically at this world of explosions and not just all explosions. I was even more niche in that to use the, the lingo of online blogging, not gas explosions, but solid material explosions, any solid materials that are finely divided. So think sawdust, coal dust, milling of grain, all these generate very fine dust that are very flammable. And my PhD research was in the physics and chemistry of why these explosions happen and how they happen. So anyone who thinks that you can't get started blogging in a really niche topic is probably, you know, that that's about as niche as you can get. So my my original blog was in dust explosion. My PhD was in that field. And that really related then to my my corporation, that company I was working with, also in high energy and high um, energetic systems. I was doing computer modeling there. Really, when I got started on the blogging side of it, it was, again, to switch from this more government research role to industrial safety. And I really thought I was going to blog to other researchers. It turns out they're not online. I couldn't find them. <laughs> so I create blog posts and put them out there and nobody would listen. But eventually the industry started to tune in and say, hey, this is kind of interesting. I didn't realize that this was the chemistry involved in and you know why we're seeing this sort of fire happen at our facility or didn't realize this is why the safety equipment that we use is designed the way that we the way that it is. So we kind of tie the science back into that. And from that point, I really changed my focus a bit from blogging to other researchers. And this may be a lesson we'll get into in the talking about science communication, but to to blogging that was on topics that were relevant to industry or maybe relevant to government regulators or rules and regulation setters, different groups like that. And I sort of just climbed the ladder through different groups as I, as I created my blog and my research from there. So they were just reaching out to you with like questions and just emails saying like, this is really interesting. That's how you got that feedback. Yeah. I mean, so I, I was writing and publishing online on my blog and then I would, you know, post on LinkedIn or post on Twitter. Most of my audience where it's on the industrial safety side was actually on LinkedIn so I just post there and eventually get known as the person who's sharing, you know, the the good information and the the important information in a space, especially if it's as, as smallly focused as dust explosions or, or you know, lots of wildlife biology topics have been here. If you're talking about specific species and specific animals, there's groups that really care about those. So I was posting on LinkedIn. People would reply to me there. I did create a newsletter and started posting weekly um, news updates on what was going on around the world in this topic and in this industry and people replied to me there and did a lot of sort of just, you know, posting great material, celebrating companies that were doing the right thing if they implement new safety systems. And that's how people would come to find me through the social sharing, through sharing my blog, eventually through search engine optimization, which we do quite well now in the, the, the world of, of dust explosion and industrial safety, as you can imagine, after doing this for, for five years. Those were some of the ways that people were coming in, I guess. I'm really curious how you started listening to entrepreneurial podcasts because I do the same thing. And I guess I sort of slowly got into it from my interest in science communication. And I think I started mostly from the angle of I had a blog, but also increasing my social media presence. And then I kind of found out that blogging was better than social media in terms of outreach. And I'd like you to comment on that too. But first, I'm curious how you started listening to those podcasts. Oh, well, you're going to make me go back and tell the part of the story <laughs> I didn't want to talk about. So when I, when I left in 2016, I really wanted to give this you know, entrepreneurship thing a try because I've been working now for half a decade. I was doing my PhD. I was really interested in you know, how to start a business. So I started listening to the Founder podcast by Nathan Chan. Um, and different entrepreneurial ones. And I, I learned after trying to start a ticket swapping company and a gluten-free subscription service that when I say start, they didn't go anywhere. It didn't, you know, didn't take off from even ground one that it's, it's kind of hard to start a business out of nothing. But I came across people like Pat Flynn talking about blogging online. And one day I sort of got fed up in, in late 2016 and said, well, Maybe I'll try this blogging thing because I'm going to run out of time my PhD. I'm going to need to find a job, so I'll switch industries. And the question was, what do you blog about? 
I say, well, why don't I just blog with the thing I'm doing every day, which is reading all these papers and dust explosions. And that once I started to get traction, I realized that that is you know, a, a possible entrepreneurial path where you can build a business from that. And, and that's we've, what I've done today. But that was the part. I tried to create like a brownie company, tried to create um, you know, this ticket swapping company. And, and I just, the whole thing of funding and seed funding and go to your local community to try to figure out it just, it didn't, it was hard and didn't make a lot of sense. But this whole world of blogging and making money online as an online business just seemed like more of a direct path. So that's how I came across Pat Flynn. That's how I came across Entrepreneur on Fire, um, Super Fast Business, other podcasts like that that I was listening to heavily at the time. Yeah. And what, for what I've learned from blogging and from those podcasts is that you, a blogging is really more about like having a website, at least in, in our field, when I say blogging, I feel like people think that it's kind of how blogging started off, where it's more like an online diary and a day in the life. And really, it's about creating informative posts. Or can you give us some reasons why you think scientists should consider becoming bloggers and potentially yeah. doing this as a career? I'm drawing three diagrams on my piece of paper here, which you can't see and the audience can't see, but it'll help me kind of go through this. So because you said something really important, you know, blogging is just this, and then maybe it's it's not. But I think there's actually a huge role that you can play as a science communicator, as a blogger, as a business owner, if you're willing to get through some of the fear of publishing online. So through three diagrams here, the first one is sort of what you said, you know, this this diary version. It's just writing about what you do every day. And that is a you know an interesting starting point. That will get people coming in that resonate with you, that want to know what you're doing and want to learn about it, that maybe want to follow your path. So that's you know kind of step number one. That's powerful in its own right. That may give you the opportunity then to help those people to you know have email exchanges back and forth, and to get results for them if they want to move forward in their life and their career direction. If they want to be more like you. That's a powerful thing. You know, it's from just communicating online, it's a powerful thing. It's also a powerful thing from, from creating a business. As you move sort of more detailed, you can start to, you know, talk to other groups, talk to and talk about the important topics in your field. So in my case, for, for dust explosions or even wildlife biology, this might be, you know, conservation efforts. What kind of animals are struggling around the the, the world? What kind of things are humans doing to impact that? What kind of things are business doing to impact that? And you start to get away from the model of a diary, which is the model diary is great, but you do bigger things with this model. It's more of an educational tool. Um, and the best way I think people ask me all the time, you know, how do I get started? What should I write about? If you're in a really narrow field, like a lot of these, like a lot of your listeners are going to be and and you know, like I was with industrial safety, I just went and pulled the top five textbooks in my field. There's only actually five, so that wasn't very hard for me, but that's how small it is. Um, and looked at the table of contents. And I didn't you know, copy what those authors are saying, but I took those topics. And I had a list of 100 topics just from the table of contents from those top books. And that's enough to create your educational blog content and blog material that can build out your website. So you know, that can take you from blogging about it being a personal diary to being more of an educational resource for your audience. It'll be more powerful for them. And then the third one, and this is where it starts to get really interesting, is when you're the, the hub, you're seen as the central authority, you build authority as a personal brand or as a company in your space. And then you have the same sort of thing where you know people may be coming to your website to learn, but there's also other groups. Maybe they're coming to your website to figure out how to hire a consultant for their work or equipment provider, or maybe you have government regulators coming in to learn, but you also have the industries coming to learn. You can be that connection point. So sort of like your website becomes the hub of that field um, as it grows, as it gets more traffic, as more people come to it, as people start to reference you. And it'll start to get scary at this point because you'll go to a conference and and people will come up to you and say, hey, Chris or hey, Stephanie, um, I follow you on LinkedIn. <laughs> like that means something to you. But it does because you end up with all these people that are coming into your ecosystem that you've created and getting a lot of great results from it, getting connections you know, facilitating change in their industry, facilitating change in their field, and then, you know, you're actually making an impact in the world. So I feel like that was an abstract discussion of these three different groups. Um, but I can go into what this looked like for dust safety science and, and maybe even grab blogger if that would be helpful to, to illustrate more with the audience. Yeah, sure. That'd be great. You can choose whichever one you want. Yeah, well, let's go with dust safety science. I mean, that's the the bigger 
impact in in a single field that's maybe you know attainable for a broader group. But when I started, then I never really did the personal diary version, but I did the version where I wrote about journal papers I was reading. So as a grad student, every day I would read somewhere between two and twenty, depending on the day, academic papers about my field. I just write the notes on the back of them, like write summary points, what they meant to my current research, how they relate to other papers. And I just flip that over and put it on my desk. And when I wanted to write blog posts about it, I would just take that piece of paper, flip it over, read the notes, and write that blog post based on my notes, reference back to the paper, and it's sort of like my take on on that research. That was a really simple way. It took me about an hour to two hours to write a blog post. It was really lying something I was already doing in my for my PhD, which was completely necessary reading academic literature, synthesizing it. So I was like step one. Step two was really on this going to the academic textbooks, pulling out the table of contents. But I also did some interesting things here to set myself up that I didn't realize I was setting myself up for. But I, as I started getting traffic to my website, my blog, I just emailed some companies that were you know, the, the bigger multinational companies in my space and said, hey, would you, you, know, would you mind putting your... Would you be all right with putting your logo on the safety science, you know, as a, as a company that's, I had, it was called meet the community. So as somebody who's interested in this field, um, I didn't charge them anything at this point in time, but just ask them if they like to. And of course the company said, yeah, that sounds great. So after I had 30 or 40 of these, I was putting with the educational content, but I was also starting to get this kind of hub effect where people were coming in to learn about what companies were there. People were coming in to learn about what the next steps were and could also find and connect with other individuals. And then moving into today, we have Dust Safety Science, which is our, our traffic website. And when I say we, I have a team of three core people plus a couple of consultants, and we're you know generating tens of thousands of dollars in revenue every month through Dust Safety Science. And the whole model is around this kind of hub and spoke. So Dust Safety Science is the traffic generator. We do awareness and knowledge in industrial safety involving explosions. Then we send people off to other properties and other platforms that we own. So we have the Dust Safety Academy, which is education and training. Um, you sign up there. It's a, a monthly membership and learn what you need to know to do consulting in this field and learn what you need to know to be, say, a health and safety manager. That's sort of one leg of the spoke. Another leg of the spoke is Dust Safety Professionals. So this is where you go to actually hire someone if you need an equipment provider, if you need a consultant. And then we have the Dust Safety Foundation, which will be coming out next year. And that's a place to support communities and families suffering loss from dust explosions. So you can kind of see how you start to build this ecosystem. It's all based on traffic through to the the core website, which in my case was Dust Safety Science. Wow, that's amazing. I wanted to comment uh, quickly on the reason why blogging or why I learned that blogging is so much better than social media is because everyone's on Google. If you have a smartphone, pretty much everyone is is Googling stuff. But there's only a small percentage of people on social media platforms, even the bigger social media platforms. For science, it seems like Twitter is the go-to social media platform. And one time I looked into it, and I think it was only about 10% of the, of the public, at least in the United States, was on Twitter. And the audience tends to be more educated and wealthier as well. So... The thing I liked about blogging is that you could really have anyone search something and then potentially your blog post comes up in Google's rankings. And if it does really well, it can be really high on the list. And this is, this is what you're talking about when you're saying about SEO, which, which you've become really, really good at. That's, that's basically how it works. But that's, that's what I really like about blogging. And, and it also lasts forever too, whereas with social media... You can make a tweet and yeah, it might get retweeted and go viral, but eventually it'll make its way down your history and people won't see it as much. Whereas with blogging, you can, again, just Google words and it'll come up. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I mean, I see a mentor of mine explained it, explained it to me this way. Think of it like an octopus. So your website is the center. It's actually has a wildlife biology tinge to it, which is good. <laughs> your, 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 your website, your platform is the the head of the octopus and social media and you know facebook groups and search engine optimization posting videos on youtube these are all tentacles that are really meant to pe- bring people into your ecosystem they're not the if you build 
if you try to build a whole influence platform in terms of making change in the world on one of those one of those tentacles, you really risk a chance of them shutting down, them you know kicking you out. <laughs> that happens sometimes. If you don't own that platform, then you're you you can really be in trouble. Both if it's for making change in the world, but also if it's a, a business, obviously as well, you want to be able to own that platform. So social media, search engine optimization, they're all traffic sources that they bring people back into the ecosystem and you can build up that ecosystem over time. So it's really, like I said, a dominant force in, in the industry. So with say dust safety science, I have a podcast there. We're on episode 92. We interview experts from around the world in industrial safety and fire and explosion prevention and protection. And we get, I think last time I checked in 2019, we had people tune in from, I want to say, 45 different countries or something like that. So it really is sort of a global aspect to it. But I wouldn't be able to do that if it was only built on Twitter, if it was only built on YouTube, or only, you know, even only built on SEO. You need to bring everybody back to your platform at the end of the day. I love the analogy of an octopus. That is that is such a great analogy. And for a lot of scientists, I see them on Instagram or even Twitter have these really long posts and threads. And I think to myself that you could totally turn this into a blog post with no extra work and get that evergreen content and build up that ecosystem. Another thing about social media is that the algorithm can change. And I remember a couple of years ago, Instagram changed their algorithm. And some people who had tens of thousands of followers were really upset because their posts were no longer reaching people uh, because the algorithm changed for the user to see posts that with the people that they interacted with most or the accounts they interacted with the most. So with having your own website, you can... collect emails and contact the people directly. That's one of the the great advantages of it. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly. And it doesn't have to be, I mean, there's, so I talk about a lot in the grad blogger podcast. We talk about dust safety science, but I also run gradblogger.com and the grad blogger podcast and the, the self tenure community, which is a, a new group that we're, we're doing there. But at grad blogger, I talk a lot about the, the how to's of this. Um, a lot of people don't want to start a newsletter because they're nervous that then they have to create a blog post every week. And you know, that's hard. It is hard. I I I think I wrote 40 in, in 56 days one time. And I was very burnt out. I didn't write any for a couple months after that. But if you think about some strategies on how you can make this easier to do, news reporting is a big one. So I use that with industrial safety. I actually report on fires and explosions that happen every week around the world. That's what I put in my newsletter. So if you're designing a newsletter, I like to have an introduction, a reoccurring kind of curation part to it and then maybe your content but then if you have a week where you don't have content going out you still have your re reoccurring uh, curation part the curation is pretty easy to do you just go to google alerts if you google google alerts i'm sure you'll find it and set alerts on the keywords that are specific to your industry and it will send you a list of all the news articles all the blog posts that are written about your industry or your field or the the thing that you're studying every week. And then you can use that and you just post links to other people's material and do a curation role and create a really valuable newsletter out of that. So dust safety science you mentioned makes tens of thousands of dollars each month? Yes. Wow. Can you talk about how your business generates that revenue and maybe different ways that independent bloggers can generate revenue from their blog? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was an independent blogger, so there's a there's a possibility there. But maybe I'll talk through some of the ways that I've made money through my blog and then still continue to do today. And then we can dive into any ones that you think are the, the best for your audience, where they might be at. So I started with advertising, not the typical advertising. And maybe we'll dive into this where you, you, know, you have a banner image and you sign up for Google AdWords and that sort of stuff, but a more direct advertising model. Education through courses and memberships is obviously an, an option, opportunity. Speaking, consulting, all these are different ways that you can go about generating money through your, your blog as you create it. Advertising was the first one I did. So does that make sense to kind of dive into first? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So with my newsletter, I mean, the traditional way that you hear a lot of bloggers talk about advertising is you sign up for a conglomerate kind of company that takes gives you some code that you put onto your website and then they, they throw banners across. And that works if you have a lot of traffic, but you need tens of thousands, if not 
you know, more traffic to, to make any real money from it. Um, but if you have a website that a very niche audience is going to, you just email or reach out to the companies that might be interested in that audience and just set up a, an agreement directly with them. So I did that with, with my newsletter. So we had a newsletter, literally it only went up to 200 people. It wasn't very big. I emailed the company and said, would you like to put your email at the bottom or your, your logo at the bottom along with the company contact information in, in a featured sponsor blog? And I still remember that was the first dollar I ever made online. I asked for $250 and they emailed me back within 10 minutes and said, we'll take a year. So it's supposed to be $250 a month. They said, oh, this, this is great. We love it. Well, you know, we'll take a year. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, 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 calm down. Obviously, there's, you know, obviously I've underpriced it or there's something wrong here. I think through <laughs> it more. So I gave them three months and, and then went back to the drawing board. But it kind of tripped something in my head thinking, you know, why is that company so eager to do that? So then I started looking at it. And if you ever go to these trade shows, these companies spend tens of thousands of dollars on booths where they may or may not get some direct leads and direct sales, being part of someone who's creating the educational assets in a space is just almost a no-brainer to them. So I immediately increased the the price on my, my newsletter. That newsletter sits at 2,500 people or so today, but I actually deleted even that sponsorship option. But that's how I got started. That was the very first advertising. I also did reports every six months on these, these fires and explosions that were happening. I'd highlight educational articles. I'd highlight successes in the community. And we sent a couple of those out as lead magnets um, on the website. And I kind of think about this email part of it. So why don't I put some advertising like a magazine does in here? And I, I created these reports on Canva. They were ugly. They look much better today because we have a designer go through and, and make it look a lot better. But I just had one page and it was the same, same sort of tone and that we've talked about before, but meet the community, meet the the dust safety community. And I had five, no, I had three by five, so 15 logos and emailed 15 companies and said, would you pay $150 to put your logo on this meet the community page inside the report? I kind of knew it already worked because I knew these same companies already wanted to put their logos for free on the website. And I got 15 out of 15, probably the only time I got a hundred percent response rate on a sales campaign in my, in my wow. online business career. But you do the math, so that's 25. Well, now I'm not going to be able to do the math. Yeah, it's but, okay. Uh, yeah, 2750, <laughs> I think, but I may be off on that. You know, thousands of dollars for something I was already creating and just to have their logos put in there. So these kind of advertising deals, if you want to call them that, are scary because you got to reach out to somebody. But you, you need a lot of traffic to make, you know, $25,000 in, in a month and, and do the kind of banner advertising. So, We've done that. Now today we have a whole advertising membership with Dust Safety Science where companies pay an annual fee to have their logos on the website in the reports we write across the educational platforms that we we have and going into Dust Safety Professionals, the website I mentioned the other day, where we're really connecting these people through. So we, my job and my role with the front blog is awareness and education. Then we go ahead and connect them with what are the next steps. Okay, they need to buy equipment for industrial safety. Here's the people to go to. You need a consultant to come in and audit your facility. Here's the groups you had a fire and you want to do an investigation on to figure out why it happened. Here's another group. And they're not all paid. Sometimes we just connect them through to here's the regulators. And obviously we don't we don't have ocean and different groups paying us, at least at this stage, but we will connect them through to whatever's the right fit for them. And you know, we have I think 35 companies in that now, and it's multiples of thousands of dollars a year for that membership. So that's a big chunk of, of where our advertising revenue comes from for the company. And you mentioned you have courses and memberships as well. Yeah. So at Dust Safety Academy, then it's uh, actually started with a conference. I ran a conference earlier this year on my topic. Um, we had 50 speakers. It was all online before COVID-19 hit and before online conferences you know, were the thing that everyone was doing all the time, which they are now. But well, we ran this event earlier in February and that conference, a part of the ticket to attend, you also got access to the Dust Safety Academy for six months. And that was sort of a back-end membership that, we, that I built out to house the conference material. Then also we do every two weeks training in there. We do Ask Me Anything sessions with, again, experts from around the world on my topic. Um, there's community forums and, and that sort of stuff. There's opportunities for increasing your level of knowledge and opportunities for getting certified training and things all housed inside this uh, membership community. And, and now we have it as a 
sort of monthly membership or quarterly membership for the, the members that come in. Cool. And just a more general discussion about science communication. Why do you think it's an important field right now? Well, I mean, I think it was always an important field. I just think we're we're hopefully getting better at doing it over time. <laughs> I I was listening to your to a previous podcast episode that you had, I think, with um, Christina Lynn, and she explained it in a really really great way. There's a lot of researchers, there's a lot of academics that are doing a lot of great work, but if it's not actually getting out into the world and making change, then you know, then as an academic community, we're we're missing something there. You think of big topics like global warming, big topics like vaccinations, uh, or even small topics like, well, I don't want to call anything a small topic on the show, but any any other sort <laughs> of, you know, more less mainstream topics, we'll say. If you're just doing the research and sitting in ivory tower, then that, that's an important job, an important role to play. But if you're not getting results and being changed in the world, then then there's a gap there. And I think science communication fills that gap. But there are some tricks to it. I mean, if we don't do it well, then we don't get the results. We don't get the change. We don't fix global warming or we don't stop a facility in Wisconsin from having an explosion, in my case, because we didn't communicate that science well. So there's, and I'm not the expert. I don't have a science communication degree. I'm a, I'm a mechanical engineer and then a chemical engineer, but I do have a lot of practice communicating scientific topics. And what I'm starting to see come out of this is moving from, I think what used to be called the deficit model. So, you know, just yelling at people saying, hey, this is the science of what it is, you know, do better. That's not going to facilitate change. And I think it's moving from coercion, which that would be, to more communication and eventually to collaboration. So when I think about science communication, as we move up to those more collaborative approaches, like having a community that talks about industrial safety, like having a community that talks about wildlife conservation for certain animals with the stakeholders that are involved, to do a lot better um, than just, you know, shouting out your science from the rooftops and hoping that somebody's going to listen and say, oh yeah, I should change what I do. Another big part of that is realizing that you have different audiences. So a lot of science communication is researcher to public, R2P. And that's really important, but you also have different channels. You have R to R, researcher to researcher. You have R to B, researcher to business. You have R to G, researcher to government. And when you started to think about how do I communicate with these different groups in different ways, I mean, what kind of information do they need? What kind of desires, fears, um, concerns do they have? And how do we address those? Then you really start to get in the heart of how do we make change with science communication? I don't know the answer there, but I, I'm willing to start asking some of the questions of how we close that gap. Yeah, it's actually really interesting interviewing you after Christina, because on the surface, it seems like there wouldn't be that much in common. But after listening to your answers and her answers, there's a lot in common in terms of dealing with industry and corporations. Uh, People think that she is outside watching animals all day or taking notes on animals. And while that definitely is part of her job doing surveys for wildlife, she talked a lot about how recently she's really talking to people a lot most of the time now. I agree with you that that we need to stop just putting it out there and hoping that people listen and try to involve these other stakeholders into the discussions because they have such a huge impact. Well, there's another part that I'll say I'll cautiously add because this is really... So if my viewpoints on science communication are, are on the fringes, probably even further on the fringe, but I'll mention it because I think it's a, a real route to change. If, if you're willing to build a profitable business out of what you're doing, then you can also facilitate change in, in a really big way. And so when I talk about Dust Safety Science, the Dust Safety Academy and Dust Safety Professionals and the Dust Safety Foundation, I made that all up in, in my own head as a brainchild from talking with experts in my field about what was needed. We've done it outside of the system. We can only do it outside of the system because I was looking at different business divisions and creating profit as a business. So there is a, a role here for, say, a funding agency to come in and help. But I was a bit worried early days that if I got funding for creating this, that there's a real risk that we create something that wasn't that useful. So in my head, it was, can I make this profitable? Can I build a profitable business? That's showing that people care. People care enough to actually um, listen to what we're doing and that we can make change. And I give some examples of like really high level. I mean, I deal with emails of people asking me about very specific and, and you know, smaller questions 
almost daily now through the website. If I actually look at my email today, yes, I have one for one from a gentleman from India who is looking at guidelines for firefighters. So when you have a, a dust explosion in a dryer system in a crane dryer, what you know, what steps should we take when we're fighting that fire so that we don't get our firefighters injured or get people injured or make things worse? And we were, I was able to point him through to some occupational health and safety resources here in the United States. Well, I'm in North, I'm in Canada, but in North America in the United States, some would say would say BC, British Columbia guidelines from Canada and also some guidelines out of Norway that he can take and then integrate and, and come up with some guidelines for firefighting efforts. So that's sort of maybe a smaller question, even though it's, it seems pretty big now I've said it, <laughs> but I've had like literally government agencies from countries reach out countries in Africa that want to do audits on their grain storage silos, and they're just not sure how to go about doing that. What should the checklist look like? Luckily, in North America and the United States in the 70s, we did a, a very large silo inspection program where we improved safety protocols across the board. So I was able to dig in, find the people that did that work and connect them through with this um, person in, in another country and say, hey, they're interested in doing this here. You know, can we can we start some discussion here? So. Yeah, all, all that was to say that there are really specific examples of because we built this platform the way that the way that I wanted to and the teams wanted to, and we've taken information from the broader industry into how to make it usable and helpful. It's it's like a really focused laser. We can kind of focus it really on the, the problems that are really important today that that are happening in the world today instead of, you know, really high level pie in the sky type stuff. And I think a lot of people probably think, even if they do have a business idea or even if um, they want to educate on a topic, that the information is already out there. And like hearing you talk about this, I would have imagined something like that already existed before you created it. And I think with science, like you said, we're so busy in the ivory tower and we see the knowledge because we have the access to the journals and we're in those academic circles. But the outside world is not really in that circle and, and they may be searching in completely different areas and not finding those answers. Well, and having it out there is the the deficit model. <laughs> it probably is yeah. out there, but it needs to be consumable by the person in the right. time yeah. that they need it. Um, and that they can take action on it. And so I'll give, if you give an example of, there's probably, you know, to, there's, there's a lot of information on say how to, how to start a blog online. You know, just, you can go to YouTube and type in how to start a blog. You'll get 15 videos on how to do it. Too much information, actually. It's not even that helpful because there's so much. If you put together a small ebook that explains how to do it in five pages, somebody may take that ebook and much prefer reading that even though that all the information is out there, now it's in a consumable form um, that you can use. But then are they ready to take action on it? Well, maybe not. Maybe they have some mental block about um, being nervous to put themselves online. Well, so then they need that information, but they need more. Maybe then they need a, you know, a course that can give them the information, but also hold their hand and help break any limiting beliefs, help you know, get them to a point where they can take action. But it's all the same information. We haven't changed how to create a blog. It's the same five-step for... 15 step process or whatever it is. We can do that in every industry. The information is totally out there. I remember when I wrote some of my first blog posts, they were like, here's the synthesis of the 200 papers I read in the last six months down to, you know, down to 600 words or a thousand words. That's, that's really helpful to provide for your community, regardless of if the information is out there or not. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I meant more that it's like in, in journal articles that people can't digest or Let's, they, yeah, they might not even away. have access to yeah. uh, financially because of a paywall. You mentioned a couple of times about being nervous about uh, posting or that people might be nervous. Um, so is that how you felt in the beginning? And can you give some tips for people on overcoming that? Oh, I still I was nervous before we went on the call here. Um, that, it doesn't <laughs> go away. That's tip number one. But I, I listened to an audiobook called Leap First by Seth Godin when I first got started. And he talks about this a lot in the audiobook about, you know, the fear of, well, it might work, it might not work, and then overcoming self-sabotage, overcoming, you know, these sort of limiting issues. And and at the end of the day, the whole point of the, the audiobook is that you, you just need to break through anyway, because you're probably gonna feel that way tomorrow again and tomorrow again. It is a bit like a a muscle, right? So 
he calls it shipping. So shipping stuff into the world is like a muscle. The first time you do it, it's going to be really hard, but it does get better as you, you exercise it. The, the quote that I took away from that book and I wrote on my wall when I first started my blog was, here I made this. I hope you like it. And literally, I had that written. I had a whole when I first started. I had a whole bunch of sticky notes all over my office about you know things that were mental mental barriers and things that, to convince me to do this because I thought we could do something big in the world. But that was one of the first ones. Here I made this. I hope you like it. And that's that's a really good frame to take when you're putting this out into the world because then you kind of let go of all that stuff. It's not you know you're just hoping somebody likes it. It's not like you have to like it. It's not. Uh, you know, you're not tying any direct outcome from it. There's a, you know, a lot of things there. So that was something to help me get over it. That the fear is going to not, it's not going to go away. It's going to be there forever, or at least it, it hasn't gone away after five years of doing this. So <laughs> I'll give you that kind of timeline, I guess, and just sort of breaking through and, and making things easier. So come with these quotes, come with these ideas that can help you is a, a really good way to do it. You also don't want to have like a, you know, a 16 step process to to ship something in the world it's as easy as just pressing this button because you've already created now the last step is just to you know press publish that's a lot easier than than setting up a bunch of roadblocks in the way yes i i get nervous too whenever i post i still do even though i kind of don't care as much what people think anymore i still get nervous i think people are are most scared of that they're going to get something wrong and they're going to be you know told like you're not smart enough or you don't know enough about this topic. And I actually used to just only blog about my research because that's what I knew really well. And I was really confident that it was it was all correct. And I also thought like I need like I was only allowed to blog about my research and not other people's research as well. But obviously that's not true. And I just always find that people are really thankful for the information more than anything. And if you do get something wrong, I have had to make corrections in the past. I mean, you just correct it. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah, I love those. Those are really, really wise words. Nothing's irreversible, really. I mean, you can correct it. And I can count on probably one hand. And I, I publish a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, going on 200 blog or podcasts, I'm at Dust Safety Science. We actually have a whole team now that, that writes content. So we do 300 posts a year. I think we're coming up on our thousands post on the website from our, our curation strategies and our blog posting strategies and there's their whole reason behind that we don't really need to get into why we do 300 posts a year but it's it's now come second nature to press publish and i've literally i've had very few people reach out and say negative things i've had a lot of people reach out and say positive things the challenge is like one negative comment feels like the weight of a hundred positive ones so when you do get that negative one you're you're really um yeah it can feel bad but to be honest it's the net effect of thinking that a negative comments coming for months and months, that's probably causing more stress in your, your life than the actual negative comments. Yeah. And once you get negative comments, it means you made it big. Well, so you, you get to wear that badge of honor. The, uh, I mentioned the self-tenured community, which is a, an a online academic business community that I just launched a few weeks ago. And we're, we're pulling in for our first cohort over the next few weeks. The time this recording is late July, 2000. 20, but I'll try to pull out. And so if you've, if you've heard everything that I've said today, any of the stuff that I've said, you know, I'm trying to do this so that we can change the, the world. With Grablogger, we're trying to arm other academics with the tools to build these sort of blogs and businesses. The first comment I got when I posted on Twitter, this new community, something along the lines of, this looks like a get-rich-quick scheme for academics um, and something else. There's a really nasty comment. I don't want to get nasty comments, uh, but don't react. I mean, that's step one. I sort of did. Don't feed the trolls is something you'll learn when you're, when you're online. But as soon as I published, I got that comment back and I was like, oh no, what am I doing? But I, I left it up and, and thank goodness, you know, thank you for that day because we have members coming in now joining that community. Yeah, for this group program that I launched uh, this this week, I posted it in two Facebook groups, and somebody really like went into me. Like they were basically saying the same thing that it was a, a scam and a gimmick. And at first, he he said he was a professor. Um, so I, I did reply and I did counter all the comments because it wasn't a Facebook page, and I did want people to have more understanding about the program, but. At the end, it was just actually really funny because 
he was discrediting my experience and said I didn't have much to offer. But I had been in this field 10 more years than him. And like he didn't even have any scientific publications. I have a PhD and postdoc experience, and he is a master's student. We did our graduate school research in the same field using non-invasive genetics. Yeah, you can ignore the trolls. I didn't in this case, but it's just amazing what people say without knowing that much about you. Like he clearly didn't do his research on me. And and yeah, I was way more of an expert than him. Yeah, it can be it can be quite difficult. I wish I could find this tweet because it was it was pretty it was pretty funny too. Once I get a chance to calm down, I do. I've done it where I've I've went back and you got to realize that the barrier to that person responding is so low. Right. That yeah. They'll say anything, and yeah. you see that if you see some really bad stuff that gets posted online, right? Like the 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 uh, mental fortitude to create a blog post or to to create a business offer and post that online and accept that all the things that come with that is so much higher than somebody to respond with a negative comment online that that it's just yeah it's i've i found it's not worth it because then they usually respond with something else that's even more ridiculous and yeah it's it's not worked out well for me when I feed the trolls. So I try to avoid it. <laughs> Do you have any closing thoughts for the listeners or maybe the best way that, that they can get started doing something like blogging? Yeah. I mean, the the, the best thing to do... So I, I already mentioned that you can probably start your... like The technology is not that hard. You can find a YouTube video and get started today. Actually, I have a getting started mini course that I forgot about at grabblogger.com. So if you go there, that will tell you how. But literally, you can find a, a YouTube video and probably up and running in eight minutes. The harder part is like making the mental decision start and just realize that when you get started, it doesn't have to be some big thing. I mean, I've talked about some pretty, you know, things that are, are in terms of the platforms that, that I build and that my team has built with Grabblogger, that same science are pretty big, but it doesn't have to be that. You can start and that's sort of why I drew the, the picture here, the start of, you know, you start with just something that's talking about what you're doing and that is enough to change your life. Um, if you're willing to put yourself online and start to communicate with others, you can find people all over the world that resonate with you. Um, you can find your research opportunities, you can find job opportunities. There are opportunities to to make an income and a business from it. But the, the hardest part is just getting started. But realize that, that barrier that feels hard is mostly in your head in terms of the actual barrier, like the technical barrier to get up and running, even the cost you're talking, you know, under a hundred dollars and, and you're, you're pretty much going, probably you can do it free nowadays, but I'm not exactly sure how, cause I haven't done that, that thing for sort of a while, but yeah, that's the, the biggest thing is just start. It, it really does have the opportunity to, to really change your, your life, whether or not it's building a business or just increasing your network. If, if you start this, when you start your PhD research, by the time you end your PhD research, you're going to have a whole lot more opportunities than you, you would otherwise. Yeah, that's a great point. I actually have a a blog post on, I think it's called like why you need a bio. Even if you aren't posting content regularly, you want to have your own website so that people can find you. If they're, if they want to know more about you, like I do the, I do a fancy scientist every Friday and there's so many people who have social media profiles, but they don't have a website and I'm trying to find information about what kind of research they do and I can't find anything. Um, so you really want you really want that information out there because when you apply for jobs, uh, you want people to be able to find a summary of you, at least in LinkedIn page. Yep, I wouldn't, I couldn't agree more. So I mean, that's my my biggest point. We're just getting started. If you already are starting, start to look at some some ways to make posting easier and and topic generation easier. And we talked about using you don't even have to actually have the textbook. If you go to Amazon, you can view the table of contents of most textbooks. So you don't have to actually buy them. Just go view the table of contents and get that list and create a list of, you know, if you create a list of 52 topics that are relevant to you, there's your topics for all your blog posts for the entire year. So that'd be like maybe phase two, you have a website. Tribes from Seth Godin is a really great book for building the sort of hub of a community. It's not an action book, but the ideas behind it. So the ideas are um, to have a tribe, you need a common narrative need a way for them to communicate to each other when you need something to do. The common narrative for dust safety science is to, to see a year with zero fatalities worldwide from dust explosions by 2038. Um, 
and when I launched the company, I actually went to Chicago and presented to a room of 200 people of industrial practitioners and got up there and actually said that that's our goal. And I was really, 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 really nervous. We actually signed 10 member companies that same, that same week that were in the audience there because we had this common narrative. We gave them a way to communicate so they connect with each other. We gave them something to do, which in our case was to, to sign up for the advertising membership and support what we're doing. Well, thank you so much for coming today. I always learn so much from you and I could talk to you forever. <laughs> well, fortunately, we've got a, chance, a couple of chances to talk behind the scenes and, and you've been yeah. on the Blogger podcast too. So I look forward to talking more as we, we move down the, down the road. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to Dr. Chris Cloney again for being on the podcast. You can find him by visiting the websites Dust Safety Science, Grad Blogger, and the Self Tenure Community. On social media, you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Grad Blogger. And I hope you'll join the Grad Blogger Facebook group and see me. And I hope you've learned some really amazing science communication tips today. If you are interested in starting a science blog, I have a blog on that. How meta. And I also have a full uh, blog post about why blogging is, in my opinion, so much better than social media for science communication. And it highlights some of the important points that both Chris and I covered today. Thanks again so much for listening. If you want to pay me back for all the tips you learned in this podcast, you can do so by leaving me a review. This helps people find my podcast. Make sure to check out my YouTube page. I have 13 different tips that help me overcome imposter syndrome. If you don't know what it is, I have an intro video that goes over it. These tips were really, really, really helpful for me. And you can take one, you can leave one, you can try all of them, see what works for you. But I've been trying to release one per day, but I got a new puppy and there was, a, there was some puppy drama in getting him, but now he's here and he's a lot of work. So I'm a little bit slower than normal, but maybe next time I'll tell you um, how we got a new puppy and we're still figuring out a name for him. Thanks so much, guys, and I hope you have an amazing day. Be nice to each other and be nice to animals. Bye.